0: Hi, welcome to the Grace Life Podcast. In churches, the Bible is taught as truth and as a guide for life. Matter of fact, much of the time, this Word of God is revered as flawless and perfect. But we may ask ourselves, how can that be true? Given what we've learned and discovered about this world, questions come to mind like, hasn't the Bible been refuted by science? Is the Bible supported by anything in history? And how can it be God's Word if sinful men wrote it? As believers, we must be able to trust God's Word, if that's what it is. This series is about answering the tough questions, so that we can find out, is it possible to have faith in God without checking our brains at the door?
1: All right, hey everybody, welcome to Grace Life. How are you guys doing? Man, it's so good to see you guys more and more every week. It's exciting to not preach to an empty room. So glad to have you guys here, especially if you are a guest. Uh, We hope you experience the presence of God. Nothing is more important to us. Hey, before we go any further into the message, I want to let you know, starting next week, it is the first Sunday of August, and so we are restarting First Step. First Step is where we get together and talk about who we are as a church, what we believe, what we do, why we do it, and uh, get a chance to meet you personally and you to meet us. We've taken advantage of the opportunity with the the COVID break to to completely rewrite our First Step material. So uh, if you've never been through First Step or if you're new to Grace Life, Perfect time right after the second service next week. Uh, Come out, we'll have launch child care and uh, get to talk and get to know each other a little bit better. All right, everybody, we're in a series. And if you're a guest, we're actually on part three of a series that we've been doing. And if you've missed any of it, you can go back and get it online or on our app. Uh, But this series, as you just saw, is simply called The Bible. And it's about answering, asking, and answering the really tough questions and challenges to the validity of the Bible. We want to make sure that we can actually trust this, right? I mean, our entire lives are supposed to be based upon this. And, well, honestly, there are some good questions. And so we have spent the first two weeks with a, uh, a gentleman who is an engineer and a scientist and retired as the chief science officer for his organization. And so we we looked at the question in two different areas. uh, Has science refuted the Bible? And I I think we kind of uh, arrived at a pretty good no. And if you're just jumping in today, you're going to say, well, that sounds a little far-fetched because I know my science teacher wouldn't agree to that. And I'm just going to say, maybe not. And that's why you need to go back and get those two parts of the series. Way too much for me to even begin to try and review for you. But we did look at those tough questions about how we came to be, how the universe came to be, what science says, what the Bible says, cause uh, they're, they're pretty far apart. And if you wanna know how in the world that could be, and science hasn't refuted the Bible, go check that out. Uh, so today we're going to be uh, looking at a slightly different answer because uh, we, we have a, a new challenge in front of us as we get into part three, and that is that the Bible is supposed to be perfect. Anybody ever heard that before? The Bible is, is perfect. Matter of fact, uh, you, you saw something in the video here. I'm going to give you a couple of verses. Uh, Psalm 1830 says, As for God, His way is perfect, and His word is flawless. Matter of fact, here's one where Jesus was being asked a question, and so he got into a challenge with them, and they were challenging him on something he said. He decided he would just quote the Bible, and here's what he said. Jesus answered them, is it not written? And then he goes on and has this little discussion with them and finishes with, and Scripture cannot be broken. Isn't it written? Haven't you heard? It's written, and Scripture can't be. In other words, don't argue with me. If Scripture says it, it's, it's just there, man. You can't do anything about it. You can't debate it. You can't argue with it because Scripture is perfect. That's what Jesus was saying. But the truth is, perfect's a pretty high standard, right? And most of us have at least one story, if not many stories, of somebody telling you, maybe you watched a documentary, maybe you were in class, but either on the documentary or in history class or something, somebody said, you know that story in the Bible never happened, right? Come on, anybody ever heard that before, right? And I'm not talking about miracle stories like Jonah and the well. Of course, people are going to tell you miracle stuff like Jonah and the well didn't happen because, well, it's a miracle and you've got to believe in a miracle God who does miracles. And, you know, there's a lot of people who say that doesn't happen. And, and it's okay if you believe in miracles and somebody else doesn't. There's, there's not a lot of proof. For that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but but what I'm talking about is when a history professor is, tells you that a historical event in the Bible actually didn't take place. And, and then there's this this challenge that comes to our faith. Wait a minute. Uh, this person has like a PhD in this. Uh, they do this for a living and, and they should know. And so if they're saying that this never happened historically, I think that that kind of challenge is what I believe. And it it may be a little bit difficult for us. So, uh, I mean, the Bible is full of dates and places and and people's names, many times important people's names and and events. And and so shouldn't there be evidence for this, right? I mean, that's like the common sense question, right? Anybody ever ask that as you're reading through some of this, like, (laughs) is there proof for this story anywhere else? And before we go any further, I want to ask you a different question because we're going to answer the question, is there any proof for this story anywhere else? But I want to ask you a different question first how would you know? Does anybody here enjoy reading archaeology journals? I mean, is that like you you get archaeology weekly or whatever? I don't even know if such a thing exists because I don't read it either, right? Has anyone here ever done a thesis or a dissertation on historical evidence for events in the Bible? Anybody, right? Okay, yeah, very funny. Okay, so here's the point. We wouldn't know because here's what we do. We watch mainstream TV. We watch mainstream news. We read mainstream articles. And so the only thing that we are going to know about what is out there to support the Bible or to not support the Bible is what they say. Come on. How many times in your life somebody told you, well, you know what they say, don't you? You know, they say you shouldn't eat eggs. I mean, come on. That's the greatest discussion of all, right? Every six months, they change their mind about whether we should eat eggs or not. You ever, ever noticed this kind of stuff? And so, look, I, I want you to know something that might be a little disappointing for some of you, uh, and because this could be heartbreaking news, but it's very important for you to understand you can't believe everything you read and hear. And I, I know that's, that's news and that's heartbreaking, but you can't believe everything you read and hear. Here's a simple point, because every human has a bias. Every human has a bias. I have a bias. I know my bias. I'm a pastor. I believe that this book is God's word. I believe it's a guide for our life. And when I stand up here and talk, you know my bias, right? The problem is not everyone announces their bias. So when you're watching a documentary on TV, the, the person on the screen or the producer who funded it, they don't always announce at the beginning, This is produced by an atheist who hopes you never believe in God again. I mean, you don't always get that announcement. You don't always get a history teacher saying, you know, I had a really bad experience going to church when I was a kid, and so I've dedicated my life to making sure all of you hate God. They don't give you their bias, I'm going to tell you a funny story that happened to me when I was in college. I had a, a, a world history professor who was telling me all about the ancient things that happened. And just to show you the bias that can be out there, and especially because a lot of us, we struggle with our, our faith sometimes in college because it's in college where you, you've left your parents' home, you've left going to church every Sunday morning, and then you've suddenly got all of these really smart people in your lives telling you the stuff in the Bible never happened. And so I was in history class. This happened in two classes back-to-back in the same week. It didn't even happen like over a a period of a couple of months. It was two classes back-to-back. And and it was like a Tuesday-Thursday thing. And so in the Tuesday class, uh, the professor says, I hope all of you understand that the exodus of the Israelites never happened. And in case you're wondering what he's talking about, he's talking about when God's people left Egypt. They left slavery. They wandered around the desert for 40 years to the promised land. And it's the whole book of Exodus. It's called the Exodus. And so he says, that that never happened. There's no historical evidence for it. I need you to know that didn't take place. And well, unfortunately, I was a music major who did not read archaeology weekly. And so I didn't have a whole lot to say other than my Sunday school teacher says, you're wrong. (laughs) So I just kept my mouth shut because I didn't know what else to say, right? And then we come back to class on Thursday, and he accuses the Israelites of being the worst ancient litter bugs because of all of the pottery shards we have spread all throughout the Middle East because of them. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. They only wandered around the desert once. You can't blame them for leaving trash wandering around the desert on the very same trip you said they never took. I mean, come on, right? And here's the point he had a bias. And so sometimes you're going to hear somebody tell you things about the Bible that are not true historically. And, well, I don't have time today to go page by page because pretty much every page has been attacked at some point. But I'm going to just show you some highlights that will hopefully point you in the right direction when somebody says that's not true about the Bible. So uh, the first thing I want to look at is uh, some of these big names and big nation events. Because the stories of the Gospels, like Jesus went to Peter's house and said something. Okay, I mean, was anybody there that can argue at Peter's house? I mean, it was just a bunch of friends. So we we read the Gospels and we go, great stories. But what about the fact that in the Bible are nations, major empires, the names of kings, and sometimes incredibly personal details, like this one in Daniel 1.1. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the story goes on. So that, I mean, if you, you can sometimes ignore one little sentence or just, just read it real fast. But it goes on to describe in detail in 2 Kings the whole uh, event of the military campaign. Matter of fact, they besieged it so long they won and they carried away a lot of the Israelites. And we have entire books of the Bible written to that time where people were in captivity. We have books like Daniel and Ezra, Nehemiah. I mean, it just goes on. Like if this didn't happen, we would have lost a lot of scripture at this point, right? So did this really happen? And, And we're also talking about Babylon. I mean, come on, even if you didn't like school, you remember hearing the name of Babylon. It was a major kingdom, one of the greatest empires uh, to ever be on planet Earth, at least from human terms, and uh, one of the ancient wonders of the world comes from this kingdom. I mean, it was an incredible kingdom, and the name Nebuchadnezzar is so famous, right? So did this really happen? And yes, the truth is yes. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, because Babylonian Chronicles, a set of tablets that are on display at the British Museum, actually record the entire thing just like it happened in the Bible. But your history teacher probably didn't tell you that. Now, the truth is that one was easy. Let's look at one that's actually uh, kind of honestly unbelievable. It comes out of Second Chronicles and it says, Now, the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, that's another king, nation of uh, empire of Persia. Says that, so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia: The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Come on, anybody ever read that and said seriously, like? a great pagan king, a pagan king of what is now the greatest empire. He conquered, he and the Persians and the Medes conquered Babylonia, uh, the Babylons. I can't talk today. The Babylonians. And so as a point, they are now the greatest empire. You've got this incredible ancient pagan king and, and he says, let me send the people home to build a temple to worship some other god and let me pay for it. Seriously, have you ever read the Bible and just said that story can't possibly be true? Well, it turns out that also on display at the British Museum is something called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's a little oval-shaped rounding that's got uh, the inscription on it that tells the story of Cyrus, king of Persia, deciding that once he took over and uh, had reign, to let people go home, he repatriated many of the people that had been taken captive, and he helped them rebuild their places of worship. Does it list the Israelites? Not specifically, but the point is that it says this is the kind of person he was, and it's what he went out to do. Uh, How about this one, Daniel 530? I mean, so far, those have been kind of easy, uh, except we're going to get into one where the Bible is wrong. And what do you do when you read the Bible and the Bible is actually wrong? And, And here's an example of that. It says, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. This verse is talking about the transition between the other two that we just read because what has happened is the Babylonians have been conquered and the last king was a guy named Belshazzar and now the Medes and the Persians have taken over. But here's the problem. For thousands of years, everyone knows that no Christian scholar, no no anybody outside of, of history ever, every historical scholar would state that Belshazzar was not the last king of Babylon. A guy named Nabonidus was. And so for thousands of years, everybody knows when you read the Bible, you've just somehow got to ignore this because this is wrong. And if you want to believe everything else in the Bible, what do you do with this? Well, those thousands of years finally came to an end just a little over 100 years ago when they discovered that Nabonidus just liked to take a lot of vacations. Matter of fact, he took so many vacations and spent so much time on his extended break because he fell in love with Arabia that he actually had to appoint someone else to reign in this place. And he appointed someone to be co-regent. He decided no one better than his son. So his son reigned in his place while he spent all of his time vacationing in Arabia. I bet you can already guess what his son's name was. Yep, Belshazzar. Look, I could go on and bore you to death, right? Okay, I want to compliment you on surviving two weeks of science class in here. And uh, now you're in history class and hope it's not triggering too much. But here's the point. Uh, My history teachers never told me that stuff. They just tried to tell me that the Bible was wrong because of Belshazzar and and any other story. And, And we don't do the research. So I just want to let you know that all of the research is out there. Matter of fact, if you go to our website for uh, this series, there's actually another video. It's a little uh, three- or four-minute video, and it's of Daryl and I uh, giving you recommendations for books you can read, websites you can visit, things where you can find out more information. Because I don't, you don't want me, I, I will bore you to death if I read to you every historical disagreement, um, and so I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to jump real quickly over uh, to the idea of archaeology. because at this point, thousands of years have transpired. Humanity's been on the earth for a long time. We should have a lot of evidence for things in the Bible. We should have dug it up by now, right? And we should see all kinds of like, look, this is the shroud of Jesus. That's, that's, we, we argue over things like that all the time. So uh, before we get into that, I just want to tell you a couple of things about archaeology you need to understand when people uh, try to debate the Bible with you. First of all, archaeology is only a little over 100 years old. Now think about that, given the fact that humanity's been on earth for thousands of years, We've only spent a little over 100 years trying to understand what came before us. And all the stuff that happened up to that was basically just glorified treasure hunting. They were not interested in uh, preservation or research. They were interested in the gold that they could dig up in tombs and so forth. So anything that came before a little over 100 years ago uh, was really uh, had nothing to do with looking for stuff. Second of all, it's very expensive and very time-consuming. But most importantly, third of all, this is hard for us to understand as Americans because we live in what I would refer to as a first-generation civilization. And what that means is that most of everything we have is built on dirt. We started with dirt. But if you go back to the ancient world and the biblical world and places like that, Things are built on top of the previous city that's built on top of the previous city because one will get run over by the Babylonians and destroyed. So somebody will build it again and the Assyrians will destroy and the Persians. And I might've got that out of order because I didn't pay attention as I should have in history class, but that's okay. Because none of us read those journals. It's all good. But the point is, it was, it was funny when I went to Israel and I was walking uh, down the Via Rosa with Teresa. right there. Well, Teresa, remember this. We're, we're walking down the Via Rosa, right? This is the street Jesus walked down carrying the cross. And so you, you kind of got a little holiness, uh, a sense of holiness, hopefully, as you're walking and you're thinking, I, I could be stepping on the same brick Jesus stepped on. And you're, you're kind of doing some of these to step on a few extra bricks to see if you can. And, and the tour guy's like, What are y'all doing? Like, Well, we're trying to step on as many bricks as we can so we can say we walked right where Jesus did. And he said, You can't do that. Wait a minute, it's the Via Rosa. He said, Yeah, but it's down there because it had been built up and built up and built up, and so the, the Via Rosa we walk on is, is feet above where Jesus actually walked. And so here's the real problem with archeology. span Most of everything we wanna find is under something that exists right now. And so I just want you to imagine right now, if somebody came to you, knocked on your front door, and said, hey, we're pretty sure there's an important rock under your house. Do you mind if we tear it down and look for it? How many of you would say, sure, no problem? And so that's one of the biggest difficulties that we have with uh, confirming the Bible through archeology span is that we have to dig up cities where people live today. So, but just for the fun of it, let's go ahead and ask some of those tough questions because there are some tough questions. And the first one is how about a guy named King David? Anybody who is as old as me or older and grew up going to church knows we have a problem because King David is one of the central figures of the Bible. I mean, he wrote Psalms supposedly, Right. He was the king of God's people, the king of Israel. Like he reigned over Jerusalem. That, that's, that's like a physical city. Matter of fact, if you go to Jerusalem, there's a part of it called the city of David. And so we've got the city of David. We've got the king of God's people. We've got someone who was said to be a man after God's own heart. That Jesus is even from his lineage, right? The son of David. I mean, seriously. And do you know what the problem is? He didn't exist according to any evidence, and that's a pretty good challenge against the Bible, because how in the world could a king of God's people, how in the world could somebody who has a city named after them, how could somebody who has supposedly wrote part of our Bible be such a great character in all of, of the Bible, in all of history, and leave absolutely zero trace on planet Earth that he was ever here, which lends a lot of people to the argument that the Bible's not true. It's a set of folk stories. And I actually had a Sunday school teacher one time that graduated from seminary and told me this is a collection of folk stories simply to inspire our faith and point us to God and it's full of folk heroes. And well, there's no greater folk hero than David, especially since he didn't exist. And the problem is, that's what we believed. Until 1993... Because it wasn't until 1993 that we finally were able to dig up something that proved that David was a real person. But the attack against the Bible all the way up until 1993, I mean, that's pretty serious, right? That one of the central figures isn't there. And all the way up until 1993, you had no argument. You had no defense other than, I don't know what to tell you. How about somebody like Pontius Pilate, right? I mean, he's a pretty influential guy. He was a Roman official, He was the prefect of Judea. That means he had to have been in Israel. He was the one who condemned Jesus to death. That makes him a pretty central figure. So it it would be, uh, you know, tough on the Bible if such a person didn't exist. And once again, how could someone like that leave zero evidence? Well, he didn't. We just didn't find it until 1961. Are you guys starting to see uh, the picture here? How about this one, the... Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle was in the Bible. It's where they set up the house of worship. It's where all of Israel would gather at least once a year for their major celebrations. We're talking Tons of people coming, and they would do tons of animal sacrifices, thousands upon thousands of animal sacrifices. I'm sorry for those of you that love your pets, okay, we don't have to get into that, but this is what they would do back then. And so they did animal sacrifices. And so if there are thousands of people gathering every year and thousands of animal sacrifices, and it was a massive place of worship, there's got to be physical evidence for it. And they never found Shiloh until 1926. And the worst part is that when they did, there was zero evidence of any animal sacrifices, but wait a minute, have you ever read the Bible? That's how they worshiped. That's how they made up for their sin, was bringing an animal, and the priest would have to kill the animal, and the bloodshed would pay up for, how did the Israelites, I mean, the whole Old Testament would be no good. The problem is they didn't find proof of that until they decided to dig a little bit more and a little bit deeper until 2017. Are you guys following what I'm saying here? Until three years ago, we believed most of what the Bible said about the Israelites had no evidence for it. So the question is, what about the things we haven't found yet? Well, I don't know. I mean, it'd be great to find Noah's Ark, right? All I want to point out is it was made of wood. <laughs> Keep that in mind. But anyway, look, here's, here's a little quote for you by Nelson Gluck, who is a renowned archaeologist who says, no, that's a key word no archaeological discovery has ever controverted or overturned a biblical reference, meaning there's not one thing we've ever found that has undermined the Bible. He actually goes on to say, scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And so, look, by the way, this is why we take a trip to Israel. If I could just do a real quick little encouragement for this, because there's nothing that'll build your faith as much is when you stand and look at the inscription that proves Pontius Pilate was a real person. I've got a picture of it myself standing right there, and I thought about bringing my slides and stuff from when I went to Israel this morning, just showing you through all that, but that would just, like the look on your faces right now, it would bore you to death, like, you know, having to watch your aunt's vacation trip, you know, when you would go over for a family reunion or something. So I decided I won't just show you all the pictures of me standing in front of these things, but I'll tell you what will build your faith is when you stand in those places yourself. And uh, so that's just, that's just to let you know we do those trips and, and next one will actually be uh, about a year from now because the good news for you is that COVID kind of canceled our 2020 trip. It gives you more time to save and plan. So, but let, I wanna close with this because uh, all of that was just for fun, honestly, maybe not fun for you, but it is fun to, to just let you know that what your history teacher has been telling you isn't true. Uh, if you go and do just a little bit of, of digging, Uh, If you go to a couple of websites, uh, it's so easy to find the information that's out there. And it's just amazing that I I keep watching people walk away from their faith because they'll say, well, you know, that story in the Bible is not true. And I'll say, well, (laughs) yes, it is. And the evidence for it's overwhelming. But once somebody really smart tells you that, somehow they become the highest authority in our lives. So as, as we close today, what I think some of you would maybe be asking is, okay, Jimmy, so some of the stories in here Maybe a lot of the stories, well, so they happened. Okay, that, that's nice. But the real issue I have with this thing is, how can you call it perfect? I mean, there are errors in it. And, and I've had professors tell me there are errors, and I know for a fact there are errors, right, Jimmy? And, and I'm gonna have to just go ahead and concede there are errors. Now, at that point, you're either gonna think that I am committing heresy or you're going to think that I just blew the whole series up. So I am going to go ahead and admit, as a pastor, and I'm not committing heresy, that there are many errors in the manuscripts that we have making our Bible. And when someone tells you that, it can once again challenge your faith. So I'm going to help you understand what those errors are. And before I give you an example on the screen, uh, don't raise your hand for this, but did you ever get in trouble in school? And, and maybe you, you, in school you actually had to write sentences and, and lines, you know, t- for your teacher, like, I will not talk during class. Come on, Tom, I know you had to do, you had to do that for sure. I will not, and you had to write like a hundred times. And then when you argued with the teacher, they said 500 times, and you're like, ooh. And so, you, you know, you started out, I will not talk during class. And then you figured out the better way to do this is go, I, 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 I all the way down the page, we'll, we we'll, we'll, all the way down the page, right? Yeah, come on, somebody else. I'm not the only one that did it that way, I know. And so here's the point. By line 23, your will looks like a squiggly mark with two sticks on it. And so when the Bible was, was being written and copied throughout millennia, we didn't have copy machines. We didn't have printers. We just had uh, typically monks sitting around writing all day long. You ever got a hand cramp and you try to write an eight and it comes out, you know, just like you can't even read what it is because your hand is just cramping up. So We have errors. But most of those errors are simply due to sloppy writing, sometimes misspelling, sometimes some some grammar issues because just because they love God, wanted to be a monk, and wanted to write out Scripture doesn't mean they passed the grammar test. Come on, some of us in here today still don't know the difference between there, there, and there or your and your, or two, two, and two, right? I mean, come on. And and so why should we be upset if a monk had some of the same issues? So take a look at this example. Let's say we found a manuscript and the first line said, now is the time for all good spelled with one O, maybe God, men, good God, God's good. So uh, to come without an E to the aid uh, of their country, wrong way to spell aid here, unless we're doing lemonade, but that's okay. But then maybe we find another manuscript because, you know, that's a little difficult. And this one says now is, that's, cool. They're doing phonetics. The time, if they like spices, for all good men to come to the aid of their country. And then another guy kind of gets a little confused on the first word and writes it like this. Today is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their nation. And so I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, when your professor says there are errors in the Bible, yes, but they're all just like this. All of the variants are like this, and the thing is that we have enough manuscripts to compare them to each other, and the question I have for you today is, does anyone have any question about what that sentence actually means? No. And so what has happened, and and just to give you the good news for this, is that we've got, uh, all the scholars would agree on this, that there is absolutely nothing in question in the Bible with regard to doctrine, points of faith like salvation, virgin birth, etc., And if there's ever a question, any of those variants out there, I want you to know there's not a cave with a couple of Hebrew and Greek scholar monks hiding in it with this secret list of all of the errors in the Bible they can't figure out. Actually, if you've got even a half-decent English copy of a Bible, every one of those variants is in your footnotes. Meaning every time there's like, well, was it supposed to be nation or country? We're really not sure. They'll put a little number and they'll put it in the footnote and say this could be country or nation. And so you are not in the dark about what's going on in your Bible. Can you trust it? And so I'm going to close with really just the best way I know how to answer the question because this is an old book and it's been copied many times. And and when we buy one today, I mean, you can still smell the ink. It's new, it's hot off the press. And the real question that many people have is how can we trust what we read today from something that is so old and been copied so many times? And the best way that I can answer that is with this video. Check out the screen. We often read or study ancient writings. But when we purchase these books today, they've often been printed in just the last few years. They're new, modern, translated copies of the ancient writing. So how can we know that what we purchase and read today is true to the original? That it says what it was meant to say? Well, that's easy if the author is still alive. But again, we're talking about ancient writings. All of our ancient writings began in a form like this, written on papyrus or a similar material. Because of that, they don't last very long. And as a result, we have no original autographs of any of our works of antiquity in existence today. As these manuscripts are worn out, they are copied in order to be preserved for future generations. And so when we read a book today, we are reading a copy of a copy. That is a copy of a copy of a copy. Do you get the picture? So the real question we have is, Can these copies we read today be considered accurate and trustworthy? Well, there are two important things. The first one is the number of these manuscripts we have. 10 manuscripts that are largely in agreement is much better than only two manuscripts with discrepancies. And the second item is the number of years that elapsed between the original writing or event and the oldest copy we have in existence today. So let's take a look at just how trustworthy some of the ancient writings are that we have today. Let's begin with the famed Athenian philosopher Plato. We believe what he wrote to be true because we have seven manuscripts still in existence today, as illustrated by the seven ping-pong balls here on the table. However, 1,200 years elapsed between the time of Plato and the oldest one of those manuscripts still in existence. How about a guy named Herodotus? His name may be a little less familiar to many of us, but he is nonetheless very important. He is a historian from ancient times, and much of what we know and believe to be true about antiquity comes from what he wrote. And we can believe what he wrote because we have eight of his manuscripts still in existence, with about 1,300 years having transpired between the time of Herodotus and the oldest one of those in existence. Let's talk about a guy named Julius Caesar that we all studied in school who led the Roman Empire and had great conquests. We believe that to be true because we have 10 of his manuscripts still in existence and only 950 years having transpired between the time of Julius Caesar and the oldest of those manuscripts. How about Aristotle, the student of Plato? He gave us the foundation for our ideas of logic in the school of philosophy, We believe what he wrote because we have 49 manuscripts still in existence today. But again, about 1400 years have transpired between the time of Aristotle and the oldest manuscript we have today. Let's take a look at something we all probably had to read in English class, something called the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer. And we may have wondered as we were reading that, How do we know if this is what it's supposed to be? Why are we reading this? Is it even true? Likely it was. And the reason for that? We have 643 of Homer's manuscripts still in existence, with less than 500 years having elapsed between the time of Homer and the oldest one of those still in existence. So the question for us today is, how about the Bible? Well, as one scholar puts it, the Bible actually suffers from an embarrassment of riches. As you can see on the table here, we have over 200 ping pong balls to represent the number of manuscripts that we still have in existence today. The only problem, that's not the correct number. We simply couldn't fit the correct number on the table. That was approximately 5,700. The problem is that only represents the Greek translation of the New Testament. It's not counting more than 10,000 copies in Latin, over 9,000 copies in languages of the day like Syriac and Coptic. And then what about the Old Testament? Well, we have over 1,500 copies of a Greek translation of the Old Testament done before the time of Jesus, known as the Septuagint. We have over 200 manuscripts, from the discovery of the Dead Sea scrolls that are actually as old as before the time of Jesus. And then we have well over 10,000 manuscripts in Hebrew still in existence. All told, we have over 35,000 manuscripts of the Bible in existence today. Well, what about the second factor of time? Well, as we discussed with the Old Testament, Our version of the Old Testament that we have today and those manuscripts actually existed before the time of Jesus. The reason that's significant is he often quoted from it, he taught it as the Word of God, said it was the Word from the Father, and never once did he suggest that there was any correction that needed to be made. As for the New Testament, most of our manuscripts have less than 100 years elapsed from the time of the eyewitness and the writing To the oldest manuscript we have today and in one case only 29 years you know what that means that means that when our manuscripts we have today were issued there were people alive that were either eyewitnesses or children of those eyewitnesses to say wait a minute jesus never said that wait a minute paul never did that but no such ancient rebuttals exist so how accurate and trustworthy is our Bible? The evidence seems pretty clear to me. We thought about doing that live, but <laughs> were not quite sure how to clean the ping pong balls up between services. Look, we know as we've done this series, it's a very different series. It's, it's not the kind of preaching I enjoy doing where I get fired up, get a little bit passionate, and see some of you cry a little tear and, feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And but this series is set to make all the other series work. Because every other series, when I refer to Scripture as the Word of God, if you've been told it's not and you believe it's not, well, then nothing else is really gonna work. So I understand this series is very different if you're a guest and you've been here for three weeks or less. This is, this is not the way we normally do things. It, it maybe isn't even very inspirational. But what I hope it does is allow everything else you read in the Bible to be inspirational because you know that you can trust it. That's what this series is about. Ever since the beginning, there's been an attack against God's word. And everywhere we go, someone has a bias. Not calling anyone bad, I'm just saying everyone has a bias. And if they don't love God and follow Jesus, well, there's an agenda from the enemy to make sure the rest of us don't. So this series, is all about helping you know that you can trust God's Word to be God's Word in your life. I mean, if we can trust everything we believe about Julius Caesar with only 10 copies that he paid to have written, by the way. (laughs) That's interesting when you pay for the historian to write down what you want him to write down, but we believe every word of it in history class. And yet we've got 35,000 plus It's undebated by scholars that the Bible is the most accurate book of antiquity, hands down. So we're going to finish up the series next week. Hope that you can make it back for that. Uh, What I want to do right now is just take a moment and pray for us. God, I thank you so much that you revealed yourself so that we would know who you are. You, You had interactions with mankind to show us what you expect from each of us and the way that you want us to live our lives. But all of that would be undermined if we couldn't believe in your word. So God, I pray right now for every person, watching every person in this room, that you will increase their faith by what they've heard today. That even when there's a question out there that still remains, because there are many, that they will know that there is an answer. And you will give them faith and courage to be able to stand strong in faith that your word is true. And finally, I want to talk to those of you that have yet to make Jesus your king. It's very likely it's because you've been told the Bible isn't true so many times that you didn't want to be one of those people who walked around carrying a copy of it. And you weren't sure, well, if everything else isn't true or if anything else isn't true, how can the part about Jesus saving me be true? But what I hope you've seen is that the Bible is trustworthy. Trustworthy as a revelation of God. And part of that revelation is that he loved you so much that he would not allow you to remain separated because of sin. Instead, he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life so that when he died, his blood paid for your sins. And by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, he'll raise you too, to eternal life. If you've never made that exchange of the life that you've been living for the one that God has for you. I wanna help you do that right now. Wherever you are, say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And now I wanna live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. And my simple prayer here today is that you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people, everybody. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's message. If you've made the decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's the best decision you'll ever make. If you've been impacted in any way, we'd love to hear about it. Head over to gracelife.church resources where you can share your story and find other tools for following Jesus. We hope you go out and make Jesus famous in your world.